it is uh, truly the most exciting time, um, uh, I think, uh, in the history of the world for uh, responsiveness to the gospel in our area, in the Arabian Peninsula. This is the Relentless Pursuit Podcast, where we hear stories from cross-cultural workers on what it's really like to be a missionary, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So if you had a chance to listen to our episode with Rafiq, you heard some pretty wild stories of miracles that happened in the Middle East when people came to faith, or even before they came to faith, as the Holy Spirit was working on them and, and Jesus was even revealing himself to them. And some of these were because of the media connection that people had with pioneers. They'd seen an ad on Facebook or Instagram or some other social media platform, and they were spiritually seeking and they followed up on it and ended up being discipled digitally before they met someone physically. But one question I think that I've had all along the way is, what does it look like when you do make those physical connections? When you meet someone who's a spiritual seeker and you begin answering their questions about what it means to follow Jesus, what is that like? Our guest today is going to help us answer that question. That's right. And we're going to start today with just real diving into what it looked like meeting up with someone at a local coffee shop, at a local restaurant or wherever, the kinds of questions people had, the kind of conversations that they had. And so we get to really get an inside look into what everyday life looks like in the Middle East for one of our workers. And I think our guest does a really good job of painting that picture for us. So we're going to start off with one of his stories. Well, we had uh, we had been on the field um, in the Arab Muslim world at this point. It must have been about probably about seven or eight years. Um, and over those first like seven or eight years, uh, the ministry on the field was really, really exciting. But it was a lot of relationship building. Um, it was a lot of fun cultural adventures. It was a lot of, you know, uh, uh, being with locals and explaining who Jesus was. And we'd only seen um, a few, uh, when I say a few, really literally probably about two or three actually make decisions to follow Christ during that time. And uh, uh, right at this point in our life, in our ministry, we're making a big transition um, in the Arab world to a country that is largely thought of as one of the most uh, uh, challenging, difficult, restrictive uh, Muslim nations in the world. You know, so as we were making this transition with the last seven or eight years in mind, we were thinking this place is probably going to be one of the most resistant, difficult places that we had been yet. And uh, I remember when we landed, you know, we'd, we'd only been um, in this this new city, this new country for a couple of weeks, and we were connecting with a media ministry. That was media, this, was, this was a number of years ago. This was when media ministries were still, um, you know, kind of developing. But this media ministry had been impacting this area for a number of years, and they actually had uh, a, a significant number of locals responding to the media ministry and many of them had already made decisions to follow Christ, which was awesome. The crazy thing was, is this ministry said, Hey man, we have been praying that there would be people to do face-to-face discipleship. And, uh, we have over 20 locals who have made decisions to follow Christ. They've been in a discipleship progress, uh, process, but they have yet to have met another Christian face-to-face. Um, and that was insane. Wow. And they said, they said, would you be willing, because these people have been asking to be discipled, would you be willing to meet with them and disciple them? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we were blown away. So we were like, 
Yes, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this city, there had not been an Arabic speaking missionary for, they, they said for about 10 years. Um, so this, uh, uh, this media um, uh, ministry had a backlog uh, of, of, of locals that had been responding to it. So within our first month in the country, um, we had uh, the contact details for over 20 locals who had already made decisions to follow Christ, um, were in a discipleship process, and then we were just meeting them face-to-face. So it was so, so cool to see, you know, coming into a place that we thought would be one of the most resistant in the world to say, you know, wow, there is there is a plentiful harvest, but legitimately this is uh, a place where the workers are few and, and we're just here to uh, to start reaping in the harvest. It was really, really yeah. uh, cool. It was a, a neat um unexpected uh, blessing and transition in our yeah. ministry. It sounds a little bit like the, you know, the verse in scripture where it talks about one person sowing, another person watering, another person reaping. And really that we hear that a lot, you know, people that go in and it seems like there's no fruit for their labors and then they will have to leave for one reason or another. And then someone else comes in and begins to reap that harvest. And this is an example, a story example of, of what that looks like. Definitely, you know, and and I think early on we had we had this notion in our mind that um, doing church planning in unreached place would would be us coming in, sharing the gospel with somebody, leading them to Christ, working with them to form community, building, you know, they, kind of the idea that we would do everything from A to Z, and that just felt overwhelming, especially as we saw kind of slow progress. Well, definitely through this experience and then over the years, we we have seen that the reality is just what you said, and it's scriptural, and it's it's that we all have a part to play in God's work in this part of uh, the world. Um, and it's probably the very rare experience that a team will, will come in and do everything from A to Z. More likely, we're going to play a part in uh, a person coming to Christ or becoming even more open to Christ than they were before. And then sometimes we might play a part in discipleship. And, um, you know, we we had to leave that particular country before that church became uh, fully what we would call like a three-self church um, or an indigenous church. But as we've left, we've seen that develop um, and other people have poured into that. So it's you're right. It's really cool. And it's a great, it's a great revelation to say, hey, it's, it's not all about us. It's uh, responding to the spirit of God and then seeing uh, him do the work and us just uh, playing the role that he's called us to. Yeah. Love that reminder of how we're just, you know, a part of God's ministry, right? None of these projects are our projects. None of them is our work, right? It is ultimately all God. And we just get these chances to kind of like come in for a little season, right? So I would love to just hear what it was like meeting with these Christians who had literally never met another Christian before, much less a foreign Christian, right? How did those like first conversations and those first interactions go? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, every one of them were in a an, in a different place, um, and you know, sometimes, and, and that was an interesting revelation for us as well too. Is 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 sometimes we say, well, when a Muslim comes to Christ, then um, the the community or their family will respond in this way, um, and uh, and that's not 
that's not really true. There's, there's a whole variation of uh, uh, levels of security that they need to consider and levels of danger that they might experience. And, and we definitely saw that as we started to to interact with them. Um, I remember the very first guy that we uh, that that I met um, through through the media follow up. So. Um, uh, just to kind of recap, so we had um, the contact details for these locals that had made decisions to follow Christ who were asking for someone to meet with him. But um, but we needed to make that first step then uh, in country, either through text message or through a phone call to, to establish that next step in the relationship. Um, and uh, the first guy I talked to, he was really excited um, uh, to be able to meet. And we set up a time to meet. Actually, there's uh, in the country that we're at, there's a Starbucks. Uh, and, uh, so we, um, which is very, I, I, that's a whole side note, but there's, uh, lots of amazing things in the Arab world that you wouldn't experience. It's not all camels and sand dunes There's Starbucks yeah. and caribou coffee. So we, <laughs> wow. uh, so we went to, um, this, I went to this Starbucks to meet him and I was messaging with him on my phone. And, um, and I, there was actually, it's not just any old Starbucks. It was a two level Starbucks. There's a downstairs and an upstairs. So it's like Starbucks at a whole new level. And, uh, and I didn't see him downstairs. So he said, I'm sitting upstairs. I went upstairs and I still didn't see him. I said, Hey bro, where are you? You know, I was messaging him. I'm here. He said, Hey, I'm in the corner right over here. And he kind of waved. And there he was, he was like in the darkest corner in the furthest spot in the Starbucks. And, uh, and I went over and I, I introduced myself. I sat down and the first thing he said to me, and this just really, I think sobered me and shocked me a bit is, is he said, he said his name, but then he said, um, I could be killed just for meeting you here today. And, um, and I think I just paused for a minute, my spirit, you know, cause we, we weren't brand new on the field. We'd, we'd been in the Arab world. We'd been doing ministry for eight years, you know, uh, at that point. And, um, and I knew that there, there's challenges and risks, but, uh, it was a whole nother thing to see this young man. He was in his early twenties. Um, and, and he was, he was so passionate about taking his faith journey to the next level of going from online to in-person discipleship that he was willing to risk his life. Um, and that was just incredible. So um, that was the start of uh, what was a number of meetings um, with other people. And a lot of it was just one-on-one. Now, not all of them were that intense. Uh, this particular young man comes from a very conservative family and the connections that, uh, that he had within his social relationships and within his community were of the extremely conservative. Um, and we met some others that, um, you know, would probably be in danger of being looked down upon by their family, but nowhere near as in danger as this young man was. Um, so uh, a lot of it was establishing relationships, doing one-on-one discipleship, um, uh, reading the word together, and then helping them move deeper in their own spiritual journey, but then also to uh, to start seeing what the Bible says and what the Spirit of God says about what it means to come together as as an indigenous body. So that was kind of right. the the beginning stages. So yeah, um, I I have I'm interested to know what some of the common themes maybe are of the questions that people are asking. I think we have experiences here in the Western world if we're talking to someone who's not yet a believer. And some of the common threads that Western secularized Americans might have about the faith. And I'm sure there's a totally different set of questions, a totally different set of concerns or objections. What are some of those that you discovered you were just consistently talking to people about when you were discipling them? 
Yeah, that's good. Um, so a, a few come to mind. Um, and uh, uh, one of them is around the idea of um, how, how realistic is it for me to actually practice my new faith in, in my home country? Um, uh, another one has to do with identity. Um, what's, what's my identity now that I'm, um, following Jesus from a Muslim background. Uh, and then others are around the idea of some specific theological things that can be controversial, especially when it comes to, uh, 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 the terminology about Israel, um, in the scriptures. So I mentioned those three things because I'll, I'll start telling a story. And if you think I should tell about one of the other ones, then I can come back to that. Um, but the, the, the first guy, um, uh, that, uh, not the first, so I told you the story about the first guy I met. This is, this is the, about the second guy, local guy that I met. Um, so I met him not in a Starbucks, but in front of a Starbucks. So, uh, I, uh, I met him out on, uh, uh, the Corniche, which is this place, beautiful place by the sea in this country where we lived. And, uh, and we sat down and as we started talking, getting to know each other, and he was telling me his testimony, something that he said uh, to me stood out. And he said, you know, um, uh, as, and then he said where he's from, as a person from this country, um, he said, there, there really is no way that I can practice my Christian faith and, and still continue to live here. But, but I really need to go. Uh, I need to go out somewhere else. I need to leave to America or Canada or UK uh, uh, because that's where I can practice my faith. Now, uh, up till that point, his whole uh, uh, beginnings of his journey of faith had been online. So that's where he'd heard about Christ and that's where his connection was, which was amazing. But the challenging thing was, is, is that everything that he saw on media, internet, TV was Western Christianity. So in his mind, practicing his faith meant uh, to him, he would need to go to a church and that church would need to have particular seating and pews, and it would need to have a stage and it would need to have a worship person and it would need to have projection and all that sort of stuff. You know, all the things that we commonly associate with church in the West. And he's like, I can never do that here. So one of the things that we did in, in, early on in discipleship with him was, was what is uh, looking at what does the Bible say about what it means to be uh, an uh, ecclesia or, or a, a community of those that have been called out right? The, the church. And, uh, and that was really exciting. I, I do remember one time we were sitting, this time we were sitting in Starbucks. So we have Starbucks. Starbucks is going to, is sponsoring this podcast, right? No, no, <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, so be um, great. yeah, I wish. Right. So we were sitting in Starbucks a uh, number of months later and we were reading a passage and it was about um, it, from the New Testament, when two or more are gathered, there I am. Jesus is speaking um, about him uh, or God being in the presence of two or more gathered in his name. And and my friend paused for a minute and, and he said, hey, man, he said, he said, this says that when we're gathered like me and you in the name of Jesus, that he is here. I said, yeah. And he said, it's almost like we're having church today then, right? Because it's like we're two together gathered with God. And we said, yeah, it's kind of like church. And he goes, it's kind of like Starbucks church. I said, yeah. So then ever, ever since that happened, it was, it was like, 
hey, bro, let's have Starbucks church today, you know, and, and then we would go and we'd read the Bible. Um, but that's that's one of the things we talked about was was uh, practicing um, how to practice your faith. How can I actually have church? How can I have community um, while not doing it in the way uh, that I see on TV, which seems really unobtainable? There's other things, like I said, the identity question and the theological one. Um, we can leave those uh, for another time or I can talk about those as well, too. Yeah. Um, well, I'm interested. It somewhat, somewhat ties into this question, but as you're encountering and having these conversations with people, I'm sure your own views are being shaped and challenged. And the way that you read scripture and the way you understand the gospel and understand church is probably being challenged and shaped by these encounters. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So, I kind of mentioned a little bit about the first guy that I met um, when we were doing the media follow-up discipleship. And I think just my views of uh, how how desperately do I want to um, grow in my faith and be close to community and close to God? That was something that was challenged in a good way. Um, uh, but also some, you know, uh, even theological things. It caused me to 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 dig deep in the scriptures. Um, this particular country, um, that, that I was serving in, uh, the one that I was just sharing the stories about. Um, these are, these are folks that go through theological Islamic theological education in the, the school system, in the state school system from when they're kids. So they're very, they're very theologically minded. Um, they, they know a lot about the, the, the Quran. They know a lot about why Islam teaches what they teach. So naturally, when they're coming into faith, into Christianity, they want to know that stuff too. They want to figure out the nuts and bolts. And, uh, and sometimes they'll just have the craziest questions, you know, like at the, ran- the most random times. I mean, I got a phone call from one of my friends. That I, I, it, it was must have been around two in the morning. It was definitely after midnight. Um, and he had, he had a question for me. I don't remember the exact question, but the, 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 the idea of the question was something like, Hey, I've been thinking, um, what, what are the limits that Satan has, uh, to, uh, engage with, uh, with other people, um, within the sovereignty of God and within the free will of man. So, it was like, oh, this isn't like just a Sunday school question. Yeah. This is like, how much power does Satan have if God is sovereign and we have free will? And how does it all fit together? And I'm like, well, we need to dig into that, right? And uh, I, I had another lady um, on the theological. This was uh, uh, a local lady. And she sat down, myself uh, and my wife were uh, were meeting with her. And, and uh, this was probably three months into her uh, faith journey after she made a decision to follow Christ. And she was really struggling. And she said, hey, I am really struggling. I'm going to bring up kind of a hot topic here. Um, uh, but she said, um, you know, I have been uh, uh, taught since I was a kid um, to hate Israel. And uh, now when when she was talking about hate Israel, it was really talking about the roots of the, um, you know, the political, the current day political state of Israel. And as she's reading the Bible for the first time, she's seeing a a whole lot of uh, terminology, even in the New Testament, about Israel. And she was trying to reconcile, um, now that I am a follower of Jesus, 
does that mean that I need to be supportive of the current political state of Israel? So this was a very complex thing. And it yeah. wasn't just a small thing for her. You know, this was a really big deal for her. And uh, it caused us to dive deep. And we had to say, okay, well, you know, even in Christian theology, there's different ways to look at this. There's a dispensational approach where you're taking things very literally and the promises to modern day Israel very literally. And there's also a covenant approach. And a covenant approach is where you say that these things are covenanted to the church. And we're not talking about the present political state of Israel here. So so, uh, having to dig deep theologically, um, so that we could be there with these challenging questions was something that was uh, deepening for me personally um, and, uh, and and pushed me in new ways. So it was very good. Yeah, it's so interesting to kind of hear about the things that people are wrestling with when they come to Christ and when they know that they have someone that they can share these concerns and share these struggles with. Because I feel like, at least for me, when I became a Christian, I just became a Christian. I wasn't like thinking at two o'clock in the morning about, you know, the work of Satan and his influence on my life or, you know, whether or not becoming a Christian meant that I had to kind of alter this whole you know, huge thing that I've been taught for my entire childhood and stuff like that. So it's just really kind of cool just to hear about the kinds of conversations you were able to have with people, though I'm sure you would have preferred it to not have been at two o'clock in the morning. Um, But yeah, just kind of like looking a little bit, you know, down this timeline, you know, you got to this country, you started meeting with these 20 people, um, that the media ministry had connected you with. And we kind of heard a little bit of the end of the story, right? So we know that you got pulled out of the country before you could sort of see it becoming its fully own self-sustaining church. But what sort of happened next after you started meeting up with these people at Starbucks or at other places? I mean, did you just like gather all of them up and they became a church of 20 people and you kind of went next from there? Or what sort of ha- what was next in, in the sort of progression of things? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good question. So, um, and even that initial twenty, you know, as we stayed there month after month, that grew because there was ongoing fresh response that were com- uh, responses that were coming through. So we were following up with some of those that had been waiting for a while, but then also um, uh, our team was following up with with people as they were coming through and as they were reaching out. Um, and, and it and it did become a challenge to meet with all of them individually. You know, you can uh, you can imagine to try to set up um, individual meetings on a regular basis uh, with multiple people. Uh, just being able to coordinate that and that being that being something that um, that that's. Uh, you're able to tackle. Um, that that was that was kind of hard. And now it, we went in with the idea that we want to start an indigenous church, um, but it is it, nice as it would be to say, well, let's just get everybody together. Um, it's uh, it doesn't happen that quickly or easily. Um, right. And one of the things that we ran into early on is the locals. Uh, though they were quite trusting of us because we were Westerners, um, the idea of them meeting with another person from their country that was saying that they were a follower of Jesus, that was very scary for them. 
um, because for us, for the most part, they they could trust uh, that that we weren't there to get them in trouble or to report them to security or to cause issues for them because we're foreigners and we're there and they assume for better or for worse, they assume that we're Christians because we're foreigners. Um, but that's not the case when uh, I'll just I'm just making up random names here. This isn't the names of actual people, but when 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 Ahmed and Abdullah decide that um, they're going to get together, Ahmed doesn't know if Abdullah is really legitimate. Maybe Abdullah is going to report him, or maybe Abdullah is uh, a, a, a part of another tribe that um, is at odds with his tribe. And and being open and sharing intimately about faith is not something they want to do. So so that was a challenge. And, and what we decided to do at one point as a team, we talked and we prayed for a while about this because we really felt like we wanted to introduce them together um, is we said, well, let's not introduce everybody, but let's pick a few and we'll just start with a few, a few men. Um, and, and let's see if, if we can talk with them about just three or four of them getting together. And uh, so we talked with them individually and it was a process. I had to say, Hey brother. So I, um, I know this other guy and this guy and this guy, and I trust them. And I've, and this actually, I've been discipling them one-on-one for about a year and a half at that point. So I really had to lean into how much trust they had in me to say, hey, I trust this guy. I've been discipling him for over a year and, and I think it would be great to meet together, you know? And for the most part, uh, we had four of these guys, um, initially, uh, agree to, to meet together. And, and it was kind of funny the the, the last guy I was talking to, he said, I will come. And I will meet with them, but I will not tell them I am from my home country. I'll tell them I'm from another country. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, this is a, this is a challenging thing here. Um, I said, well, we don't really want to lie about that. That's not good. And I said, uh, I said how about this? Um, I said, uh, you can come. And uh, is there a way for them to, to, to think you're from another country? I kind of asked, I said, I, I said, they're going to just know you're from here. And he said, no, 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 they won't know. He said, I will talk like I am from this other country. So this country he was talking about, they have a very distinct Arabic dialect and, uh, and it's a well-known dialect. So he figured if he speaks in this dialect, they would think he's from there. Well, anyways, long story short, the guys all got together. And this, this guy I was talking about, um, he was the last one to arrive. He arrived, everybody greeted each other, and they all shared their testimonies. And it was really, really cool because they built trust. And all of a sudden, the guards came down. And, and at the end of my friend sharing his story, one of the other guys looked at him and he said, I just have one question for you. And he said, well, what is it? And he said, well, he said, you're from our country, but you're talking like a guy from this other country. He's like, what's the deal, man? <laughs> and, uh, and he kind of laughed about it, uh, in the end. And he said, well, I was nervous. So I thought I would talk like from another country. So anyways, Aww. it was really funny. And, uh, but it was, it was a building, uh, uh, binding experience. So that was the beginning. Um, and it's, it's actually kind of neat because that guy who was the most nervous, who wanted to, to, you know, make people think he wasn't even from this local country here. Uh, he ended up being the one that was, uh, pastoring, uh, this small group of locals. So, uh, it was wow. awesome to see the Lord build up his faith, um, over time and to, to strengthen it and to really catch a passion to, uh, to pastor his own people. It was really neat. 
What a yeah, sweet story. I, yeah, really, really. I, I would imagine that in places like that, there's there's always this sense that these seeds that are being sown, these little sprouts, you're you're wondering where they are. Are these the little ones on the roadside that are going to spring up and then fall away? Or are they are the, the thorns going to come up and choke them? Do you feel like a big part of it is getting people together um, so that they can not just see and have a relationship with a Western believer, but have a relationship with somebody that has a shared culture with them. Um, and do you think that contributes to like the ongoing sustainability of their faith? If you can just get people together, if it's more than one or two, if it's three, if, you know, if, if it's these gatherings, no matter how small and simple they might be. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I mean, um, as an organization, right. Our, our, some of our core values are, um, initiating church planning movements and, um, and, and we, we believe that as an organization because we believe the Bible teaches that our, our faith isn't meant to be practiced in a vacuum. Um, uh, when you read the scriptures, you don't read uh, about um, uh, just the individuals that follow God, but you read about the body of Christ. You read about the community. You read about you know what we have then translated you know to uh, from from the community uh, to church is the translation that we use of uh, in English of 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 being that body. So um, definitely, I mean theologically, it's it's a hundred percent where we want to go, but practically speaking just like what you're saying, um, uh, there, there's a change that, that happens when they go from just being an isolated individual uh, believer to being part of a connected community body of local uh, believers. And, uh, and that body isn't just some consist of foreigners that are in and out, but uh, uh, people that share their same heritage, that share their, their culture, that share their same passport. They're, they're not planning on leaving that country uh, anytime soon. Um, and, and to see it grow into that is just uh, amazing. It's biblical, it's theological, but practically um, it, it's empowering. And, and we see that, that um, empowerment happen um, as they come together. Yeah, that's, awesome. that's great. Yeah. So what does a church look like? I mean, I imagine, you know, you were describing this guy was kind of picturing Western church and how, you know, he, he can't have big stage with pews and, you know, all these kinds of things. So what, is, what did one of those churches look like? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Well, I mean, there's different examples we could give, right? So I, I guess I'm just kind of keeping in line of the thread of the story that we started telling at the beginning of this mm -hmm. podcast. Um, uh, eventually, uh, you know, we, we saw a group that included um, uh, uh, local men and local ladies. Uh, we had a family that was a part of that um, as well with his kids uh, that ended up coming to that. And uh, they would initially meet um, in a home. They met in our home initially. Um, and uh, we, we really, actually there was, uh, at the very beginning, we almost discouraged it from being in our home. We didn't want to make it feel as if in order to have church, you need it you need to be in a Westerner's home. Uh, but there was some realities within everyone's situation where we just did not have a good place to meet otherwise. So that meeting was in our home. Um, but uh, we would all uh, uh, sit down. There's a room uh, called the modulus. This is a modulus is, is an Arabic word. It, it comes from the root jalasa, which means seat. Uh, 
or to be seated, yajlis. Majlis is the place of seating. So actually in Arab culture, there is a room of the house that is just for sitting and having community. Um, and uh, that's something at all uh, all Arab culture. So we used our majlis or our sitting community room um, to be the uh, the location. And, uh, and we would sit down, everybody would talk a little bit, they'd catch up, um, you know, from the previous week, and we'd have some worship. Um, uh, initially, we just played some Arabic worship songs um, on a, through, through some Bluetooth speakers on a phone, uh, but eventually there was a young lady that could play the guitar, and she did some music from that. And then, um, and then we would have uh, some time in the Word. And the local brother that ended up leading the congregation, he would, he would stand up in the modulus and he would open his Bible and he would preach. And, uh, even if there was just two or three people there, uh, or if there was, you know, a large mega church gathering of like 11 or 12, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, either way he would stand up and, and he would preach. Um, and, uh, and, and we would share some of the sacraments together too, as well. We had communion. I remember our first communion, um, and, uh, I still have the pictures of it. Uh, we, uh, we took some pictures on the table and it was really cool. It was the broken bread. It was, um, some empty, uh, cups from the grape juice. Um, and we had our Arabic worship songbook that was on the table. We took a picture of that and our local brother wanted that, that picture. So, um, so yeah, a lot of it is, I guess, similar to what we'd experience, you know, in Western church in the States, but just more, focused in at home, um, done, you know, uh, on a different day of the week, not done on Sunday. We, mm -hmm. we were meeting on Friday mornings, um, which is the, uh, the Islamic holy day. So other Muslims are out at the mosque and then they would, they would come over. So that's a little example, but again, yeah. uh, lots and lots of different examples of how these, um, these fellowships look like, um, uh, in different parts of the Arab world, but, uh, but they are smaller, more intimate, uh, and they tend to meet in, uh, unofficial, um, faith, uh, location, like, like not in a, a, a church or, or a, a mosque, but rather in homes. Yeah. Because of that, do you feel like there is probably more of this happening in parts of the Arab world that maybe look a lot more non-Christian than we might think because it's kind of hidden. You know, they, these, these groups are not, they're not, they don't have websites. They don't have public, um, presences, but it sounds like it's something that might be happening more than we think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for sure, you know, I mean, in, in, um, you know, in, in any of the areas where we work, you're, you're, you're not going to see any, what we would call above ground um, indigenous churches from Muslim background. So I'll, I'll kind of, uh, just to explain unpack that. Unpack that uh, a little bit. <laughs> so, so we have, uh, as we're talking about the Arab world, the Arab world is quite diverse. Um, uh, the Middle East has some, um, historic Christianity that's been present since the time of Islam. Um, so Egypt has the Coptic church, uh, uh Syria, Lebanon, um, Iraq, they all have historic churches in small numbers. So they're small. Uh, so, so you may see some, what you would call churches that are indigenous to that area there. Um, but when you go to those places, you're not going to see like, uh, the, the, 
the for example I'll, I'll use just a random uh, Middle Eastern country name Jordan uh, wouldn't have the Jordanian Church of uh, Muslim Muslim background believers right you're you're not going to see that anywhere uh, publicly and then when mm-hmm. it comes to the Arabian Peninsula the Arabian Peninsula does not have that historic church um, yeah. so from 1400 years when Islam uh, came into the region um, uh, any remnants of Christian church that were present were fully pushed out. Uh, so, uh, so you don't see that at all. You do not, you don't see an official church of, for example, Saudi Arabia or the, the, the church of Kuwait or the church of Oman or UAE. You see some international churches there, you know, which are going to be, uh, churches that are for foreigners, uh, only, but you don't see indigenous churches there. Um, those are going to be considered more underground or hidden or in homes. Um, sometimes uh, we, we talked about media ministries. Uh, they've come up with some creative ways to have community online, online community and online church. That's been some things that they've done as well, too. Um, uh, some Local believers have been a part of the international churches where they just kind of come under the radar to go to service, but then they fellowship together outside. Um, so there are growing communities of indigenous believers, but you're not going to see them. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to see those billboards anywhere. Is this because if they were to go to some of these churches, it would just invite scrutiny or are they not? Do they not feel welcome in these churches or is it just so culturally different because these are Christian background people in these churches or from other countries elsewhere in the world? Yeah, I, I, any, any and all of the above. Okay. <laughs> so um, there, uh, there are cultural differences. Um, there are differences in uh, security needs that a local believer would have versus an international church. Um, there are some international churches that may have concern over them getting in trouble, should they invite locals to be a part of their congregation? Right. Um, there, uh, um, there are language differences. Um, there are, you know, there's uh, across the board. So it's not to say that that the international churches um, aren't uh, significant or or important in sharing the light of Christ, um, uh, but they're they're not uh, a sustainable place for the indigenous church, uh, to, to thrive. Um, I, I think there's partnership, uh, that can happen. I think there's some discipleship that can happen, but, but eventually, um, uh, a, a more indigenous community that's locally led, um, we feel is going to be important for, uh, uh, for the full fullness and longevity of, of faith, uh, growth within those countries. Yeah. So as like a church planter yourself, right? And obviously I think you've gotten to see church planting happen in a number of different countries. What do you think are some of like the key ingredients either in yourself or in the environment that are important to help get it started, right? Because obviously you can't see the whole picture. I mean, you have no idea where it's going to go in the long run, right? But what are some, if there over your experience, if there are some um, similar characteristics that you've seen across the Arabian Peninsula that you saw, oh, you know, these were things that were really vital to getting our evangelism, discipleship, and church planting off the ground. Do any come to mind? 
Yeah. So in your question, are you thinking more towards the success and sustainability of the team's ministry or or the success and sustainability of of the Indigenous Fellowship themselves? I think more the Indigenous Fellowship yeah. itself. So yeah. either is fine. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, w- when we talk about uh, a church planning, we talk we often uh, talk about something called a three self church. Now that's uh, that theol or that that type of missiology was developed. Um, uh, I mean, over a hundred years ago, and since some say four self or five self church, but essentially what we're talking about is we're talking about a church that's indigenous, which means that it's 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 rel- it's relevant, it's local, it's rooted uh, within local community, um, and it it self theologizes, which would be one of one of those three selves, which means um, they're able to figure out, understand, interpret, and apply the scriptures themselves um, in that they don't need to rely upon a Western missionary in order to ask uh, and answer the, the critical theological and spiritual questions. Now, this is a process, of course. There's, there's a period of discipleship where outside church uh, leadership helps them learn how to theologize. Um, but uh, uh, having a self-theologizing, self-theologizing church is important. Um, then secondly, that it would be self-supporting. Um, and that would be that that indigenous fellowship would not be reliant on structures finances uh, or or specific logistical support from the outside in that if if I was there today with that church and any money support logistics I was giving to them uh, was taken away that they would still be able to support themselves so that includes a place like uh, a place to meet um, I'm supporting them with a place to meet in my home that's not necessarily a self-supporting model we would want them to be able to find that themselves um, and then the third would be um, self-planting or self-reaching there's different uh, terms for that and that means that they would have a heart a burden and a desire to reach their own people um, so uh, a church that can theologize themselves, that can support themselves, and that has a heart to reach their own people, um, tends to be those those undergirding principles uh, that would allow for a healthy, thriving, growing indigenous church. Now, obviously, there's things like you know appointing elders and leaders and supporting them in that, but that also goes together with the self-theologizing, to be able to make some of those leadership decisions themselves, to apply those things themselves. Um, would be really important. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question, uh, oh, per se, if that's what you're looking for, but that's yeah. the types of things we're thinking about from day one is, is one, how can we support the three self uh, principles or the three self model as they're growing in their faith, but also how can we uh, caution ourselves not to do things that would allow them to rely upon us um, for for all these things, but to to find that balance um, so that they can grow um, themselves. I would yeah, think I love, that. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Jess. I was gonna say I, I love how you boiled it down to such like key yeah. ingredients and key pieces. It's just like three things, right? Like anybody can remember those, and I feel like those are not necessarily specific just to the Arabian Peninsula. I feel like those characteristics of seeing an indigenous church grow. I mean, that can be very generalized. I feel like to a lot of the world. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I think that there's definitely both from a stereotypical standpoint and even just objectively, it's you're in a hard part of the world um, for for planting churches. 
But I would imagine there's also some advantage in the fact that you have to be simple. You, you, you know, you don't have the opportunity to build a building that then requires an infrastructure and financing and things like that to sustain it. It's almost like you have to start on such an organic level because of the context you're in that you avoid some of those um, pitfalls maybe that you have if you were planting a church in a more open context. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I, I would say, you know, uh, even less less of it being pitfalls and more of it being complexities, right? Right. I, I mean, God bless uh, uh, American church planners. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh, do they need to figure out people want a nice building and they want yeah. a cafe in their church and they want a service that starts at this time and ends at this time and they want seats that feel like this and you know it, it, in a <laughs> lot of ways um, you know it's not it's it's not to rag on it or dog on it but it's challenging because uh, in the West um, you have to acculturate just like we're acculturating where we're at in the Western uh, uh, ministry atmosphere we need to acculturate to the communities here and uh, we have some high demand acculturation in the <laughs> right, in the United right. States so uh yeah so it is nice to be able to be simple it'll be interesting to see in the future decades how things change um you know uh of course uh, historically in the past uh the church even in the west was a much more um uh, a simple church when you talk mm-hmm. about um you know post reformation and um in, in moving away from um some of that orthodoxy into more of that evangelical mindset you had what was it originally uh, at that point what would be considered more organic uh right. and and it has it has become a bit more complex so all that yeah. to say um yes I, I i agree and i love being in a place where things are simple and yeah. that should be a reason for more people if you want simplicity in church planning come over to the air over here yeah <laughs> it's it. kind of ironic you, you some people here they want a starbucks in their church and they're the church is in the Starbucks. There it's, we go. It's, it's, Boom. It's just a, yeah. <laughs> well uh, said. Well <laughs> said. So it's, I think that, you know, the story you're telling, it's it's a slow process. It's a methodical process. And it depends heavily on the Holy Spirit's work. Um, and also those who've gone before to lay a foundation, whether it's through media, through, um, you know, spreading the gospel in ways that draw out people that are spiritual seekers. But at the same time, I'm looking at the sheer scope of the Arab world, of the Arabian Peninsula, Um, the the sheer volume of people there. This is also a part of the world that's growing from a population standpoint. Mm -hmm. And it's got to feel sometimes like you're just like dropping a pebble in in the ocean in some ways. Um, So is that challenging to deal with? And like, how do you how do you cope with the fact that you still are going to require the Holy Spirit to do something miraculous to really have movements start in this part of the world. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, and, and I will say um, over the years, you know, cause this is coming on now will be 20 years on the field. Uh, and, and it is um, truly the most exciting time. Um, uh, I think uh, in the history of the world for uh, the responsiveness to the gospel in our area, in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, now, uh, for security purposes, I can't 
I can't share the exact numbers, um, but but I'll just kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. Um, so 14, r- roughly 1400 years ago was when Islam came into the Arabian Peninsula. Kind of like I said, at that point, um, all Christianity that was present, because there were some small remnants in there, uh, not say remnants, there were some uh, some small um, groupings of, of Christianity in different places. Um, and at that point, all of that Christianity was pulled out. So for um, then we go now for nearly 1300 years, years, uh, there had been no missionary focus, no gospel presence in this part of the world. Uh, it was just a little over 100 years ago that the first missionaries, um, not talking about from pioneers, obviously pioneers mm-hmm. is, is younger than that, but yeah. from any mission organization um, in the world, uh, the first missionaries did not start coming until just a little over 100 years ago. So so missions history is quite young in this part of the world when we talk about you know how long there has been Christian mission presence and, and focus in other places in the world, in South and Central America, going out east. Asia. Um, in the Arabian Peninsula, it's very new. So now if you fast forward it up all the way from, you know, the late 1800s up until, you know, the 1990s, we really didn't start seeing significant response to the gospel until around the 1990s. And then what happens is what you see is from around 2000 up to where we're at coming on 2024 here, um, you see massive leaps in responsiveness to the gospel. And uh, again, like I said, I can't share the numbers, but what I can say is we have clearly gone from zero, 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 all the way hundreds of years to all of a sudden, a little over 20 years ago, all of a sudden there's a boom and there's this massive growth. And what I think is really exciting is that boom and that massive growth directly coincides with more prayer, more focus, more missionaries, more gospel-centered people in the marketplace coming to that area, and all of a sudden we see growth. So I think uh, something that encourages me is a lot of times people think, oh man, this is difficult and this is slow and there's not a responsiveness. Now, in a way that's true, because if I were to tell you the numbers, you know, with no context, you'd say, well, that's not very many believers. But when I tell you the numbers compared to 1,400 years, 1,300 years with nothing, and all of a sudden, we send some of the first missionaries, there's the Lausanne movement, and we learn about what unreached people groups are, and organizations like Pioneers and Frontiers and um, other groups are, are, are started, and they start going to these places, and what happens? People come to Christ. And that's what's happening now. So I'm really, really excited about that, um, to say, hey, there is growth it is working. People are coming to Christ. And uh, really in the last 20 years, and I would say even within that, in the last eight to 10 years, there's been more uh, exponential growth than we've ever seen in this part of the world. That's encouraging. I hope people that hear this are encouraged by that, because I think if you just go by what you see in the media or in the news or um, wherever you get your information, this is not being reported. You know, we're we're not hearing about this. So it's great to hear from someone who has on the ground experience that God is at work, that the Holy Spirit is drawing people to the Father, and that the gospel is being proclaimed. It just probably isn't gonna look like what we expect. I think that's that's one takeaway for sure. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking this time with us. Before we close out, we do have some quick fire questions, and these are just for our listeners to get a glimpse of what you're like, your personality. 
Um, and so don't think too hard about these. Just give the first answer that, that comes to your mind. The first one, I think we already know the answer to, but I'm going to say it anyway. Coffee or tea? Oh, coffee for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and you are in a coffee drinking part of the world, so that's to be expected, right? Definitely. Definitely. Are you an early bird or a night owl? Oh, I'm both, and that is my bane, right? Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. You, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. No, you can't. You can't. You're going to pay try. the price. Yeah. <laughs> I try. Uh, yeah. Winter, spring, summer, or fall? Oh man, I I am I am from a, a part of the United States that gets snow and cold all the time. Yeah. So in my heart, that's what I want. But I've yeah. moved to the country of the four seasons of hot, terribly hot, ridiculously hot, and don't leave your house hot. You know, yeah. so <laughs> it's got to deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> now, without obviously, you don't want to give away where where you're at exactly. But what's your favorite local dish? My favorite local dish. Oh, man. There's something in one of the countries that they make that is so good. And it's uh, it's a meat that is wrapped in banana leaves and spices. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's put on a bed of coals and buried in the ground yeah. for, for like a day. And then they dig it up and it's all just like succulent. And it's like almost yeah. like if you're eating like, like a beef jerky, that's succulent, you know, yeah. Some, something between a beef jerky and, uh, um, yeah, I, I don't know, some sort of a, amazing brisket barbecue or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's really <laughs> good. good. It's really, yeah. really banana good. Leaves. Wow. Yeah. Is, there, is yeah. banana like native to the Arabian Peninsula or do they import uh, all Boy, that's a good question. I don't know. You know, I, I'm not <laughs> sure. Maybe yeah. they're using palm fronds too. I don't know. Right. Or maybe right, there's right. some special imported banana leaves. I yeah. don't see. I don't see a whole lot of banana trees. I see a lot of palm trees and date date palms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there a quick language mishap that you can remember in the process of learning to speak uh, the local language? Oh, a language mishap, man. I'm gonna have to think about that one. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, you can I, pass on it if you I don't. Like. Yeah. I don't have one. That, have one. I don't have one that you might have to edit yeah. this part out. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> yeah. You know, and that is um, we've heard that before. Yeah. They're often pretty embarrassing. <laughs> I, 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 I can't remember. I'm sure I've yeah. had them. I'm sure I've had them, but I can't think of a good one right yeah. away. No. Besides um, the weather, what is a missed comfort from home? So missed comfort from home. Oh, uh, besides the weather, oh man, that's that's like the and main. And you can't one. bring the snow with you, obviously. I know, I know. I it's it's really hard to answer that one, yeah. you know, because now, now you know, being around twenty years on the field, that feels more like home. Yeah, um, and uh, and you know, probably just having family, uh, having yeah. family close by. You know, right. having family and I, even our daughter, we have a, a young daughter and she's now experiencing we're, we're back in the United States for a period of time. Uh, and she's experiencing her first year in the United States. Um, and uh, and there's some good there, but she misses home. Home is overseas right. to her. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's hard to say what we miss right now. We're missing yeah. our home overseas since we're, yeah. since we're stateside. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what is something from home that you miss from home overseas that you miss while you're here in the U.S.? Yeah, good question. Oh wow! So yeah, I I mean our friends, our community, our team. Um, uh, I I go I go off roading in the desert with my local friends. I get a jeep, and it's it's a we have nice. a blast. That's so much fun. Um, you know, miss doing that. 
Um, miss, I got a, a big board game club I'm a part of there with just some of the best friends ever. Um, and uh, a lot of locals in that club and others, you know, there's just a, a whole lot of relationships and community and, and culture that, that we miss a whole bunch. My daughter misses her school and the other kids on the team. Yeah. So, right. Yeah. Right. Is there a go-to late night snack? Hmm. Sour Patch Kids. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. What did you want to be when you were younger, when you grew up? I, well, it's kind of funny. I, I told my mom when I was a little kid that I was either going to be Billy Graham or a high mountain ranger. And uh, so the cool thing is I get to be a little bit of both. Right. So uh, I get to adventure and, and, and do things out in the wilderness and tell people about Jesus. So that actually, that actually turned out pretty good. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and really expand our vision of what God is doing in the Arabian Peninsula. And also hopefully stir up some imagination about how someone listening could actually be involved. That it may look different than what you expect and that um, the opportunities are so broad and wide and um, to be part of something that's really on the cutting edge of what where, where God's heart is at, I think. So thanks for your time. Yeah, for sure. It was a blessing to be with you guys. Thank you for uh, letting me spend a little time with you. Being in this part of the world, I'm sure people are wondering, what happens if I get arrested? What happens if I do have to leave? What does it mean when you say I got kicked out of the country? And well, we don't want to give people the impression that that happens all the time. It really doesn't. It does happen sometimes. That is part of the reality of working in areas where security is a concern. And so if you want to hear a little bit more of what it might look like to have to leave a country suddenly, if you want to hear about that kind of situation from someone who's actually lived it, then you can hear a little bit more of our guest story from the link below that's in the show notes. Also, um, be sure to check out in our show notes some links about church planting and what it looks like, as well as some videos that we've produced that give you a real glimpse into what uh, church planting is from the pioneer's perspective. I think a lot of us probably have misperceptions at one point in our lives about what church planting really looks like. And I think our guest really helped us diffuse some of the expectations people might have of just how complex it is and how simple it can actually be to plant a church among the unreached. I also want to mention that we have a new book that just came out that tells the stories of missionaries like our guest and his family that were unexpectedly rerouted in their journey to the nations, and also how God used that to actually bring them into a place where they could be fruitful for him. So check out that book. It's in our show notes. We have it also available online to read for free. Well, this is the last episode of the season, and we've really enjoyed sharing stories from our workers with you. If you've enjoyed it too, don't forget to leave us a review and a five-star rating. But we're not done yet. We actually have two bonus episodes for you. Yep. The first one drops January 2nd, and it's a conversation with Kim, who serves as one of our mission mentors. When someone connects to Pioneers, she and her team are actually the first people that you'll talk to. So she's also the perfect person to give us an inside look at the process of joining Pioneers. And she also takes some time to address some of the big concerns and fears that people have um, when they are pursuing missions. And so definitely check that out. Our second bonus episode actually comes to us from our friends at the Compelled Podcast. In it, our Pioneers president, Steve Richardson, tells what it was like growing up in the jungles of Indonesia and what happens when a tribe of headhunters encounters the gospel. So that episode's going to drop later in January, so keep an eye open for it. 
Thanks for following us on this episode of the Relentless Pursuit podcast. Our goal is to make missions accessible to show that it's not just reserved for elite super Christians. If you want to be involved, just go to pioneers.org slash start and answer a few questions. We have a team who would love to help you discern your calling and what your next steps might be. At Pioneers, we love to partner with local churches and send teams to people groups with little or no access to the gospel. Keep up with what God is doing by following us on Instagram, Facebook, X, and YouTube, all at Pioneers USA, one word, or visit pioneers.org. Thanks for listening.